Good morning. Okay, this morning, finally, we're going to finish the pericope about Saul's conversion. That's found in Acts 9, 10 through 19. We already did the part where he saw Christ who revealed himself to Paul. Now we're going to pick up Ananias, a disciple that the Lord chose to use to uh, bring Saul into the church and, and to pray for him to be filled with the Spirit and he was baptized. I'm, I'm going to pray and then I'll have Eric read the pericope. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the fellowship of the saints, for your kindness and mercy that you save lost sinners. May we learn from what happened with our dear brother Saul. and May we understand your word and may we apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right. Acts 9, 10 through 19. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. So now converted Saul, or at least to had been confronted on the road to Damascus and had been shown a vision of Christ. Now he's there, and there's an ordinary, quote, disciple in Damascus named Ananias, unrelated, of course, to the Ananias that shows up later in Acts. And here he has a vision. So now Saul had a vision of the appearance of the resurrected Christ. And now the Lord speaks to this Ananias also in a vision. And he said to him, Ananias called him my name. Here I am, Lord. So Ananias had probably been in Damascus for a while. It's not totally clear how or when he was converted, but he was a Christian. So there were Christians in Damascus already. And uh, that's where Paul was going because he heard that and he wanted to stop it. He was on this satanic mission to stomp out the gospel and to persecute Christians. But his evil mission was stopped in its tracks by resurrected Christ and so we have here I have this on my slide what's called uh, by the scholars a literary device that doesn't mean it didn't really happen by the way trying to understand how Luke writes and what tools he's using to make his point and the point of the double vision is that God is supernaturally in charge of the situation. Saul sees a vision, Ananias sees a vision separately. 
to, to underscore that, we'll see in the next section when we get into Acts 10 that when it comes to the gospel going to the God-fearing Gentiles, again, we'll have a double vision, Peter and Cornelius. And that's how it's declared that God's in charge of this whole process. I want to read Dr. Tannehill. Here's what Tannehill, I've mentioned it before. If you want to study Luke-Acts, you must read Tannehill. It's the greatest scholarly work on the topic. He says this, the reconciliation of enemies takes place through the literary device of the double vision. By the way, this same device has been seen in other ancient literature. But in this case, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we know it's true. It says Tannehill, the appearance of the Lord to Saul directs him into Damascus, where an important task will be revealed to him. Apart from this further communication to be brought by a human messenger, Saul is left in limbo. His helplessness, says Tannehill, is strongly expressed through his blindness. He must be led by the hand even to enter the city. Verse 12, there's a reference to a supplementary supplementary vision by Paul. While praying, he sees the man who will come and enable him to begin his new life. Similarly, Ananias' vision directs him to Saul. So double vision leads these two together. In the next section of Acts, double vision leads Peter Cornelius together. God is causing Acts 1 and verse 8 to be literally fulfilled as the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And the skill with which Luke writes never ceases to bring me much joy and, and hope. And i reading this, and I've been looking at some of the old messages I did on Luke 10 years ago. It just refreshes. Wow, this is this Luke Acts is unbelievable. And it's all about the gospel. It's all about God's mercy. It's all about the salvation of unexpected people. That's a theme in Luke Acts. Unexpected people are saved. The immoral woman who wept on Jesus' feet. The prodigal son. No way would anybody show the kind of grace and mercy to that prodigal that is narrated in that beautiful story. And here, a man who hated Christ and his disciples becomes a follower of Jesus. We see how, we see through God's word how he operates in situations like this double vision, but we can also look at our individual salvation stories, if you will, and we can say the same thing. How unbeknownst to us, God has placed people throughout our lives to intersect and to cause us to come to salvation. Amen. Remember to get the mic right there. You like to talk with your hands. I'm a Jewish guy. What can I tell you? Here's the mic. <laughs> All right. That's a good point. One thing I, I do is I always have two or three people that are CAC readers whom I'm discipling. Last night I was working with a couple of my needy disciples. One, one who's really learning and the other one who's struggling I, I do that because I can't do in-person ministry like I used to because I can barely keep enough voice to preach. But I can do that typing. And I got a really interesting question from this one lady who's really growing in the Lord. And she said, well, people say 
God told me this or God told me that. And uh, you're saying sola scriptura or something like that. God only speaks through scripture. So all these people who say God told me this or God told me that, you're going to take all that away from them. Then God doesn't speak, nor does God do miracles. I said, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we need a stronger doctrine of providence. Okay? And that, like you were saying, Brian, because the canon is closed and God has spoken, doesn't mean that God can't get us to the right place at the right time. It doesn't mean that God doesn't give us thoughts. I had one teacher I loved in Bible college. He, he didn't want to say, God told me this, God told me that. He was kind of against that. And he said, every once in a while we have a sanctified thought. <laughs> but I told this lady, I sent her a link to the article on providence. We are free, my dear brothers and sisters, to make decisions. And if they're within our Christian liberty, we're not violating any moral law of God, we can decide. And deciding is part of providence. God allows us the joy of doing that. And one fellow said, well, I just got to, I'm an old, I've been a Christian 45 years. Now I got this burning desire to preach. I want to learn how to be a preacher and preach the gospel. But you're telling me I can't have some, he was asking about total surrender. So this desire to preach doesn't mean total surrender. Because so was, he was talking about Oswald Chambers article I said total surrender happens at conversion think about it what happened to Saul when he met Christ on the road did he say well after this all happens well I might do what you want let me think about it he was ready to go serve Christ okay it doesn't mean every Christian is just as obedient as they possibly could be. But what I've learned in the last 20 years is that we've had too weak a doctrine of conversion and that we just sort of make a decision maybe to sort of be religious or go to a Christian church. Conversion, and I'm going to prove this the next two weeks in my sermons, it's going from being a child of Satan to a child of God. That's what John says. That's not a partial anything. So I'm going to try to prove that the next two weeks. Now, so I told the guy, if you have a strong desire to be a preacher, and, it's, and you can do that without violating some moral law of God, which I'm sure you can, Make your decision. It's not more or less a call from God if you don't see a vision and hear an angel and the bells ring. You just decided God's using our decisions to get us to the right place at the right time. Sometimes things impose themselves upon us and we're forced to make a decision. That's providence too. It's not lesser. Yes, Luann. I just found it real interesting because I was reading an article this week, and it was um, from 1997 by a, um, the author was a Bob Duway. I oh, think. no. <laughs> but, I hope I said something good. <laughs> but he said, uh, human choices do not alter reality. They only alter one's relationship to ultimate reality. And I just thought that really made sense in this postmodern you know, and how we put so much emphasis on our choices and, you know, but every decision we make, it's kind of, that's what it either, um, it doesn't alter our reality, but it does alter our relationship. with. Yeah, we can choose to go be a hippie and take hallucinogenic mushrooms, but that would be violating God's moral law, wouldn't it? 
one thing I'm doing to help people, this other one kind of troubled person, there's a bunch. I'm trying to get people to stay in concrete reality, okay? Because they contact me about spirits and demons. And there's sort of a gray line between mental illness and spiritual warfare. And, but in it, whatever you call it, it's not reality. So I keep telling people over and over, like a broken record, although I understand if you're young, you don't know what a record is. <laughs> oh, they're coming back, aren't they? I guess they are coming back. Well, when I was a kid, we had records. And if they got broke, they just kept skipping and say the same thing. Say, listen, well, what should I do? Is this Satan? Are these thoughts real? What's going on with me? And I say, believe the promises of God. Believe the promises of God. And then I send in my email the promises of God, scriptures. Well, I don't know if I'm saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And, well, I don't feel right. Trust God. Go to the throne of grace. The peace of God will take care of you. Believe the promises of God. Why? Because they're objective. They're not going to change. They're not going to go away if we don't get something right. If I stumble, the promises of God do not. Does that make sense? Believe the promises of God. So I'm working very hard to get people into concrete reality. You don't need to hear the voice of God. This is a supernatural thing God did to bring Saul into the Christian church and to send him. God can do that. But we don't need to seek experiences. We need to trust his providence. Yes. Yeah, I was, Eric and I were just talking about this recently, that we were many years, several years ago, at least 10, we were kind of into the, the hearing voices, not hearing voices, but going by um, inklings and hunches and like Mike Abendroth says, liver quivers, you know. <laughs> oh, or, oh, you know, something, this situation is happening, so it must be from God. And we made kind of a major decision um, about, based on some of that. Um, it wasn't totally based, based on that, but we made a big move. And it really was quite a d- disaster. So we extricated ourselves from that. And, you know, what's interesting is the, the going from this kind of a disastrous thing where we thought it, it was God speaking to us, um, by hunches and, and inklings to where we are now, living now, and everything worked out, so here we are at this church now. So that, I, you know, you can look back and say, well, I wouldn't be here at a, at a biblical, godly church if it wasn't for that disaster 10 years ago. So, God, you know, God I mean, uses you, all things. Yeah. I wrote, in that article I wrote sometime, I don't know if that was the one or not, but it was back in a long time ago, See, I used to think the other way. God, what car should I get? Okay, I need to buy, I need a car. because I never bought a new one. I just found some old junker and fixed it. One time I got the, an old junker that looked nice, but it came from a, this car jockey who sold me a car that had probably 300,000 miles, but it looked good. And I ended up having to rebuild everything. And back then, I thought, okay, I wasn't listening to God. I must not have been listening to God. See, in my mind, I was thinking, if I would listen to God, he would have told me, don't buy that car. No, I'm free to buy what car I decide. Buyer beware. (laughs) What I could have done was pop the chrome off the bottom of the door and saw all the rust under there. (laughs) I didn't do that guy had taped off the chrome, painted it, made it look good, sold it. Now, after, I use that, I think, in my article as an illustration. God gives us the liberty to decide to get an education, to go to a church, to buy a car, for your young person to ask somebody to marry you, 
or you could maybe be old and do that too, I guess. But all of these things are decisions that we make within the moral law of God. Now, if I decide to do something that means I don't feed my family and I don't pay the, pay the house payment, that would be wrong. That's what I need to know. But you make your decision. God's in charge of it. So what I'm trying to explain, by believing the promises of God, making decisions within our Christian liberty, and trusting him in all things, we do not lose the supernatural. Oh, not at all. We're held by the everlasting arms. He cares for us. He protects us. He leads us. He guides us. And he gets us to the right place at the right time. And when we look back, how did that happen? But thank God I'm here. So I know what God's called me to do, which is to work as hard as I can that whatever I do present to you from the word is accurate. If I get pneumonia and I can't do it, that's why we got Eric. (laughs) Bob, you used the word um, call that I, I know what I'm called to do, but yet we don't believe that God speaks to us outside of his word. Um, Well, okay, go um, go ahead. So um, on this side of the apostles, when we feel the revelation is full, um, people use the word call or or I felt God call me to do this or I was called to be a preacher. How do you explain a calling on someone's life? Well, we may have a desire to do something and a motivated motivation to do what's necessary to achieve what it is we want to do. But I would, I think in my article back 10 years ago, I referenced James in explaining this category. Remember in James, these guys, these would-be businessmen said, let's go here and there and make a big profit. We're going to go and start a business, make a lot of money, and then we're going to all these great things. And what does it say? What does it say? You should have said, if the Lord wills. You don't know. You're boasting about what you don't know. Okay. You're free to go have a business and to do it in a godly way. But trust God for the outcome. The business may fail. Are you telling me that no Christian business ever failed? Can't say that. When I went to seminary in 1992, a couple of my best friends told me that's what I had to do. You need to go to seminary. I didn't want to. So I consulted my father, who I admired and his wisdom. And I said, Dad, my friends want me to go to seminary, but I'm 41 years old. And it's going to take me years to graduate. And when I finally graduate, I'll be in my late 40s. Dad said, six years from now, you're going to be in your late 40s if you don't go to seminary. (laughs) What do you say? So I went. And as soon as I got there, I loved it. I was in my element. I loved academia. What I'm sharing with you now from Tannehill, I wouldn't even know it existed. It was exactly what needed to happen, and I didn't want to do it. But my best friends and my dad said, do it. So I did. It was still my decision. And it turned out, I can see now, the Lord was preparing me to be able to write books and debate people in the public arena. I didn't know that would happen. I didn't know if I'd ever have a job. But I did know that six years later, I'd be in my late 40s. (laughs) Now I think, oh, to be in my late 40s. (laughs) So do you understand the categories? 
So we don't have to say, I'm going to do this and this and this or make oaths or say, God told me or say, thus saith the Lord. We just make our decision always trusting God no matter what. Because people who live in faith are being blessed no matter what. Yes. We, we also don't need to live in fear that we make the wrong decision or exactly. un, un, unlaw, worrying, oh, is God's will this or that, this job or that job, or this career or that career? We don't need to worry and we just make the decision we like. Scott, you're exactly right. Besides, what we tend to do is assume if we did make a lot of money, we were listening to God. And if the business failed, we didn't listen to God. If the car goes hundreds of thousands of miles with no repairs, God told me to buy the car. If it turns into a lemon, I wasn't listening to God. God doesn't protect us from the bad things in life if we get the magic solution and hear his voice. Good point, Scott. All things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we make our decisions. See, whatever is not of faith is sin. Okay? So if we make a decision to do something that transgresses God's moral law, that's sin. If we make a decision within our Christian liberty and trust God, that's faith. The outcome will be for our good no matter what happens. Do you get it? So here we have a supernatural double vision. And so Ananias was not an apostle or a prophet. He didn't have any special status. He was just one of the brothers in Damascus. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he may regain his sight. This is that double vision that Tannehill was talking about. I, I quote here Dr. Paul Hill. Ananias in no way established the legitimacy of Paul. There was no succession through the laying on of his hands. He was merely a pious but otherwise unknown Jewish Christian of Damascus whom Jesus commissioned as his agent in the healing and baptism of Paul. Here an ordinary Christian, which we all are, is used by God in an extraordinary way And the whole thing is commemorated in the book of Acts. So when we get to heaven, we'll eventually be able to talk to Paul. And maybe we can talk to Ananias. They'll both be there. So he has a vision of Christ. And now he has one of Ananias. Notice the historical details. Street called Straight. Dr. Longenecker says the street called Straight was an east-west street that is still one of the main thoroughfares of Damascus. The Derb El Mustakin. It had colonnaded halls on either side and imposing gates at each end. And presumably was as well known in antiquity as Regent Street in London or Michigan Avenue in Chicago today. So there is historical accuracy. The Bible doesn't follow cleverly devised fables. These are real events with real people in real cold, sober history. Cold, sober history. This really happened. This is no Book of Mormon. No place that really exists, no events that really happened. It's all fiction. 
Ananias knows about this guy. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. We talked about that earlier. It's one of the interesting things in Acts. Christians are designated those who call on the name. Call on the name. Remember Romans 10? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. You see, that's from, is that Joel? Where's that from? I think it's Joel 2.32, but I'm willing to be corrected if it's not. I think it is. So the Christians are the ones who call on the name. So saints and call on the name are synonymously parallel, talking about the same people. Again, Longenecker. But Luke lays emphasis on Ananias' hesitancy, not just to humanize his narrative, but to impress on his readers the magnitude of the change in Saul's life and to highlight the heaven-ordained nature of his later Christian mission. One, that instead of a persecutor, he is Christ's chosen instrument. Two, instead of a concern for Israel alone, his mission to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And three, that instead of prominence and glory, it is necessary for him to suffer for my name. God chose Saul of Tarsus to bear the name of the Lord before kings and dignitaries, for Jew and Gentile, amidst much persecution and much hostility, this violent enemy of the gospel becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ. God changes lives. Now, Ananias wasn't so sure about going to pray for this guy. Maybe it was all a ruse, but yet the Lord was the one who sent him to do it. Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must. What's that word, Eric? It's a day of the divine necessity. Divine necessity. Day, he must suffer for my name's sake. Chosen vessel, chosen instrument in the Greek literally says instrument of election. Instrument of election. God chose Saul. You know, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus does show how conversion is a supernatural work of God. Is it not? Was uh, Saul a seeker? Remember no. last week's sermon? Oh, you know, I think I'm kind of warming up to this idea. No, he was breathing out threats of slaughter. He wasn't warming up to anything. He's warming up to be more violent and vicious. He didn't make a no, he didn't decide. He goes, who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. In verse 14, Ananias spoke of Saul binding, quote, all who call on your name, unquote. Here in verse 14, the name is used again in regard to suffering. He must suffer for my name's sake. So we have a reversal, a reversal. To bear my name before is the language of a legal setting being a witness in a court setting. That's what witness means. I'm going to quote 
Luke 12, 11, and 12. Remember, Luke Acts is a two-volume work. Luke 12, 11, and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, I talked about a couple years ago how to discern a true work of the Spirit. And what we learned was throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, what they do is they confess Christ. No matter how hostile the environment, no matter how much danger there is, the Holy Spirit causes us to confess Christ. We might think, well, if I say it just right, maybe I'll get out of trouble. That's why Jesus says this, I believe. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will teach you what you ought to say. What do they say? Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, the one who died for sins, the one who ascended into heaven, the one who's coming again. Yes, brother. Um, I have uh, read uh, several outstanding inspirational uh, conversion stories of Islamic terrorists that have had extreme role reversals. Yeah, you know what? Every conversion is a role reversal, isn't it? Amen. God is taking his enemies and changing them. There you go. God is still doing this. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, stop right there. He must have believed what the Lord said, didn't he? He objected. This guy wants to kill us. He wants to take us, put us in prison. He's our enemy. Oh, no, the Lord said he's a chosen instrument. And so when he finally sees Saul, he says, Brother Saul. Bob, that is a great example of the relationship between faith and obedience. Ananias believes the word of God. He acts on it. So if he didn't act on it, then it's evident that he didn't really believe. And that's the relationship between faith and obedience that I I think we see all over Scripture. Oh, yeah. Obedience is is a result of genuine faith. We don't work ourselves up to enough obedience so that finally God accepts us. But we believe his promises and the Holy Spirit changes us, and we end up people who obey our dear Lord. That's why teaching obedience to Christ is not teaching legalism or salvation by works. The next two weeks, as the Lord is willing and enabling me, I'll show you from First John how broad and absolute these categories are. John, to give you a little preview, John teaches in broad categories. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is saying to the Lord Jesus, I will not have this man rule over me. Saul before his conversion. Faith is abiding in Christ. Abiding. Those are the two categories. Next week, I'm going to lay it out. Sin, lawlessness, abiding, faith. Either or. So, hopefully, by God's grace, I can fulfill that promise and actually preach. Uh, Dr. Peterson also has Tannehill, and he summarizes the categories. Let me quote that to you. Oh, excuse me. Did I finish that verse? The Lord Jesus 
appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's what he was there to do. Lay his hands on him, be filled with the Spirit. Now, Peterson, quote, Tannehill helpfully summarizes the phrases used in Acts to describe Saul's distinctive commission in the following way. He's chosen by the Lord. Bunch of verses. Sent as a witness to Jews and Gentiles. Whole bunch of verses in Acts. His mission will encounter rejection and require suffering. Whole bunch of verses. But he will bring light. Whole bunch of verses. He will preach repentance. Whole bunch of verses. By the way, there's a man who teaches that Paul never preached repentance. So I wrote an article about it. Say here, 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 here. Paul preached repentance. Oh, that doesn't matter. We don't care. Don't listen to that kind of nonsense. Go to the Bible. I don't care how kind or how nice somebody is. Lies are still lies. Paul preached repentance. Yes. Um, It just, and this is where we need to be reading the Bible because the Bible proves itself. Scripture proves Scripture. So, you know, uh, someone that makes a claim like that, if you if you look at the entire Bible, you, you can't get away from repentance. You just can't do that. Yeah. Sometimes they fool you by saying, by failing to notice when the command is to turn to the Lord, which is a synonym. They don't count that. But even at that, Paul did preach repentance using the term. And here's the verses just in case you've been fooled by that false teacher on TV. He will preach repentance. Acts 20, 21. 26, 18. 26, 20. All right. Turn from darkness to the light, from the dominion of Satan. To God. Acts 26, 18. And one more, his witness to Jesus will be based on what he has seen and heard. So there it is. Eric, could you look up Acts 2, 38 and 39? Absolutely. It says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. Okay, that reminds me of something somebody asked earlier. Yeah. About calling. Oh, yeah. Explain the difference between the external call and the internal call and how Acts 2.39 fits into that. Yeah, so... In theology, we distinguish between two different types of calling. One would be the universal call. And that's a call that goes out to every single human being. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's a genuine call for people to repent and believe upon the gospel. We call, again, that's the universal call. But there's a different calling that we often call the effectual calling. And the effectual calling is where God, by his Holy Spirit, enables people for the first time to believe and therefore later obey. And that's exactly what you see here in verse 39. He says, it's for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So in a room, let's say you're preaching the gospel, you may be proclaiming the universal call universally to everyone in that room, but God may be effectually calling some that will necessarily believe. Those who are, those ones who believe are those who are effectually called, even though everyone was called to actually repent and believe. Right. There's two ways we describe that, or maybe more. Yeah. You're saying factual and universal. Right, right. You can also say external, internal. Yeah, exactly. Yep, same thing. So everybody hears Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. Everybody hears it. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of those people, the Lord called to himself, and they 
were convicted. They realized this Jesus whom we rejected really is the Messiah. He really was raised. Peter's preaching the truth. Oh my, I'm lost. I need Christ. That's the internal call or the effectual call. So, when it says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, it's true. If you do call, because the Lord called you to himself, right? Okay, go ahead. Would it be a good idea for us to know, not only in this room, but those who are listening by the Internet, to know who this false teacher was? Yeah, Les Feldig. Okay, thank you. You could have picked about a dozen of them. No, I, I debated I debated that. His followers blindly follow him, no matter what. I, I wrote an article, I debated some. Paul never preached repentance. So I quote verse after verse after verse. Well, he, Paul didn't figure out not to preach that until after the end of Acts. What? Literally, it's what they say. Peter had a different gospel than Paul did. So then I quote First Corinthians 15. This is what they preach. This is what we preach. This is what we, this is the gospel. And Feldic followers will say, First Corinthians 15 is the gospel. I said, okay. So Paul said the other apostles preached it. And Les Feldic says they didn't. Now who's right? Paul or Les Feldic? Well, I'll have to call Les and ask him about that. Folks. We got to decide if we believe the Bible or we don't. I saw people so blinded, so lied to, that they don't care what the Bible says. So now when I get emails, which I still do, I go right to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said he preached the same gospel, Peter and the others. What do you say? Well, then they go silent or they go away. Well, you need to look at these other verses. No, all the verses are inspired, including First Corinthians 15. And you tell me that is the gospel. And it says the others preach it. So where do you get your theology from? They go away. So do that. If you have friends who blindly follow Les Faulding, the false teacher who will have to answer to God for his false teaching, go to First Corinthians 15. Be done with it. Yes. Yes, a good friend of mine asked me to write it because some of her followers were getting into that and asking about it. And he came into town, some people went, and they were shocked at what was taught. So she asked me to write the article, and I did. And boy, I didn't make a lot of friends. But I'm willing to stand up for the preaching of repentance because Paul preached it. One more here. Acts 9, 18 and 19. And immediately, Uthus, I like that word, there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. They were afraid of him. Now they receive him into their fellowship as one of them, them followers of Jesus Christ. I read a bunch of stuff about what these scales were. Nobody knows for sure. But some of the scholars cite stuff from ancient literature and Greek and one interesting theory is the scales were like the scales of the serpent. Who, who is it that Paul said blinds the eyes? Yeah, the God of this age blinds their eyes. The scales fell off. Dear ones, every time there's a conversion, the scales fall off somebody's eyes. Amen. Do you remember when you came to Christ and you realized, maybe you can't remember, you don't have to, to be a Christian. 
You could have been converted at a young age. But you realize it's true. It's true. Christ really is reigning in heaven. The scales fall off. In his case, he literally began to see again because he was literally blinded. Yes. The words, something like, we went through that with Eric in Revelation 9. I, I'm try, I was just trying to look it up, but there was that same phrase, and, and Eric's response was, it, it, in other parts of the Bible, in fact, the resurrection, it was like this, where, in fact, when the Bible says that, it could be the actual thing that it's talking about because they use that phraseology. Am I close? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think um, you're referring to the part in Revelation where it was, it was as if he was slain. As if he was slain. And in, right, and that's in Revelation 13. Well, then in oh, Revelation okay. 5, I think, verse 16, yeah. or 5, 6, it's in Revelation 5 where Jesus is in the throne room. He was the lamb as if slain. Right. And my whole point there is in John, what I'm going to do is I'm going to compare how John uses that phrase, as if. As if. So my, what I want to do is to say, is there evidence that the resurrection of the Antichrist is a pseudo-resurrection, uh-huh. as if? Right. Well, if I'm going to take it as a pseudo-resurrection, or excuse me, a, a pseudo-fatal uh, wound, yeah. as if he'd been slain, then I would have to take that same phrase in John's work in Revelation right. 5 and say, well, it was as if Christ had been slain, but he really wasn't. So I'm comparing the author's own work. Right, right. Here, and and I, would, I agree with that. Yeah. And, and I was just using that. Uh, I had the phraseology around there, but you said as if, and I'm comparing that to something like. And it's like, almost like a simile. It's almost the same type thing. Brian. So, yeah. oh, so when Bob says that some people think that they could be like scales from a serpent, I'm not saying they're not scales from a serpent. But they could just be like scales, just right. Um, it's probably a simile. I don't know. It's probably is there hosts in the Greek, Bob? There's something like it might be um, hosts, which is as or like, yeah, uh, something like that. Where what verse they're, they're using in? a simile. They're not saying it's scales, but it's right. something like something that. They're like using scales. phenomenological language to describe. Yeah, yeah. Hosts. Hosts. Yeah. So. Yeah, and that's often used in similes. So the idea is he's describing something real. But it's not necessarily a literal. It, it appear, it's, it's like a scale. It's like a bear. It's like a leopard. But it's not actually that thing. But it looks like it. There was something real on his eyes that fell off, and he was describing it. Yep. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Now, one more point I had from this Dr. Peterson. David Peterson has a great commentary on Acts as well. I have such a wonderful blessing having such great scholarly sources. I love it. Doing this study is just a great blessing. Here's what he says, quote, there are many ways in which Saul's conversion was unique. Indeed, neither Ethiopian nor Saul nor Cornelius is presented as an ideal example, says Peterson, of how people become Christians. Each individual whose conversion appears in Acts represents some larger group or some thread in Luke's narrative. No conversion, not even that of the crowd at Pentecost, established a pattern that is to be followed by later believers or is appealed to in in preaching. Okay, so I wrote an article way back when about this because... Some people were trying to take the idea of tongues and make it a pattern. But when I went through every case, there's no real ordo salutis, order of salvation. There's no pattern. Luke has his purpose. And so not everyone who's converted saw the resurrected Christ in a vision. Not everyone had the Apostle Peter come having seen a vision. But in all cases, it's a true conversion because they're turning from sin to Christ. They're turning from darkness to light. 
They're turning from the dominion of Satan to God. They're turning from being a rebel to being a servant of Christ. They're calling on the name of the Lord. They're believing in the resurrection. They're coming to Christ. They're repenting. There's all these terms. And so we can't create our own theory out of them. There is a group that says, if you don't speak in tongues, you can't be saved. And they try to prove that from a couple of verses. So I think Peterson makes a good point. The narrative thread isn't that all conversions look identical in their circumstances. The narrative thread is that the programmatic verse is Acts 1.8. You should be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the innermost parts of the world. And the thread is that is happening throughout the book of Acts. The gospel's going to unexpected people in unexpected places and are coming to the Lord. Yes? Well, in addition to um, what, what you were saying about the different conversions in Acts, setting a pattern, so I was involved with a group that taught that first you had to be baptized, then you had to have hands laid on, and then you received the Holy Spirit. So they're basing that on the experience with, with the Samaritans, right? But it's, it was interesting to me that in this, in this incident, Paul has hands laid on first, and then he's baptized. So he doesn't follow, you know, their right. prescribed order. Right. That's a great point, Dana. And see, when I wrote the article I did back in the 90s, I just went through all the examples, and my conclusion was there's no set pattern. The thing that all of these have in common is that lost sinners come to Christ and that they believe in Christ who's raised from the dead. Yes. I think of the terms prescriptive and descriptive, and then also the terms uh, necessary and sufficient. And I might be, you know, stirring up things here, but it's repentance, it's calling on the name of Jesus Christ, it's receiving Christ, you know, and it's, and then as Eric taught us, uh, I think in recent weeks, baptism is a result that you do and that's, I suppose a person could spend hours discussing all of that, but the, the concept of necessary and sufficient. Yeah, they're taking one point and trying to make a pattern that doesn't exist. I just wanted to make a contrasting comment about the last sentence on that slide. And so many of the modern day churches today they leave out the word Christian, they say the church readily receives no repentance sinners no matter how bad they are there it's just a social club there's no repentance i'll talk about so that. many churches yes i will be talking about that god willing when i preach in first john because three different people in one week told me of, of situations where churches are telling People, they can live in whatever sin they want and still be a Christian. And I'm going to point out next week, the 4th, and the week after the 11th, that the Bible calls that lawlessness. Lawlessness. And if we're going to say to Jesus, I will not have this man rule over me, we're not a Christian. Repentant sinners didn't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They heard the gospel and believed. The change happens because God changes us from the inside out. And it may be a battle, but we want to get rid of the lawlessness and we want to abide in Christ. John 8, if you want to read ahead of time for the next two weeks, read the whole chapter, John 8. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you'll be my disciples. you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They got mad and said, we don't need to be free. We're fine. 
Guess where that conversation goes? Read it yourself. Yes. And one I more, just, and then we got to go. And I just was commenting on the last one, too, because, um, and maybe it's Deuteronomy 29, 29, things we can't know. But when it says the church readily receives repentant sinners, totally agree. But then we have the situations like in South Carolina where that man came in and oh. with the Bible study and suddenly massacred all the people who readily took him in. It shows how wicked and evil the human heart is. I just saw that again on the news. I'd been a while since I heard about it. A man goes into this black church, these beautiful, loving Christian people who received him in, taught him the Bible, and prayed, and he could see how real these Christians were. And at the end, he murdered them. That's how evil, evil is. So I wonder if these liberals who say there's no necessary change, do they have any categories? Would the liberals say, well, if you're a murderer, people are just born that way, and you can go ahead and kill Christians in the church, and you're still a Christian? Well, I suppose they would think that was bad. See, the question is, are there or are there not moral categories? If there are, are they revealed in the Bible or do we dream them up? And I say they're revealed in the Bible. Well, in which case, we have our answer. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for helping us learn. Thank you for converting Saul of Tarsus. May we always believe your promises and trust you and receive repentant sinners with open arms. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.